Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? This afternoon, I'm talking to clinical psychologist Randy Patterson. Among other things, Randy is an expert in assertiveness and assertive communication. Over the years, I've learned a ton from Randy, so much so that I now believe assertiveness is the most underrated concept in all of mental health. Whether you'd like to improve the quality of your relationships, build more self-confidence, or just want to get better at standing up for yourself and expressing your ideas clearly, assertiveness is likely the skill you never knew you needed. Randy Patterson, welcome to the show. Oh, hello, Nick. It's uh, good to hear from you, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So let's just jump right in here. Um, You open your book on assertiveness with the following line. Two kinds of people pick up a book on assertiveness. With that statement kind of as a jumping off point, can you talk a little bit about what assertiveness really is, and maybe just as importantly, what it's not? Yeah, at that point in the book, I was I was thinking that, you know, there's real a real split there. There's some that are interested in assertiveness as a way to express themselves and be more present and genuine in relationships. And then there's folks that are more interested in, um, uh, to use a popular term, uh, polishing their brand. Uh, in other words, creating a public image that is actually not who they are and promoting that to others. And and I've really pitched the book as this is more about how to actually be present. It's not about how to create a more effective false self, if you like. So that's 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 one idea about all of this, that um, assertiveness is not a strategy to create a more impervious self that is invulnerable to any um, feedback or pressure from other people uh, or anything like that. It, it, it's, it's much more about um, being present. It's based, the book is actually based on a group therapy program that I ran some years ago. And that manual for clients and uh, a corresponding manual for therapists was called Being There. And the reason for that was that the idea of assertiveness is to allow people to be more fully present in relationships, not as in that that branding or or personal image idea being hidden more effectively. Yeah, you used the great metaphor of assertiveness is about taking off the mask, not crafting a new mask. I, I love that. And a lot of my a lot of my clients who I've recommended your book to really resonate with that image. Yeah, I think it's a really uh um, effective way of putting it. Another metaphor that I use is of the idea of being on a stage where, uh, you know, people that overuse the passive strategy see themselves as members of the audience. Everybody else in the world is allowed on stage, but not them. The aggressive style, much more uh, like a sumo um, com- competition where you're allowed on stage and your mission really is to push everybody else off into the audience. And the assertive posture being one where everybody is sort of allowed on stage at the same time, in effect. Right. So 
And that's a great segue, actually. So for people who haven't read your book, you one of the most important parts about it, I think, is you you walk through these kind of four basic styles of, of communication. Um, and I'm wondering if you can, and, and they're styles that we all use to some degree, but some of us tend to tend towards one or the other or even kind of overuse one or the other. So I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through what those styles of communication are and how they relate to the bigger concept of, of assertiveness. Sure. Well, the first of these strategies is called the passive strategy. And um, that sounds like something that that's very, um, you know, person lazing about doing nothing. In fact, a person who overuses the passive strategy might be more active than anybody else because they're saying yes to everything that everybody wants. They're racing around. They're uh, abiding with everybody's uh, demands and so on. And I'm using that as a kind of type way of thinking. I'm referring to this idea of the passive person. In fact, we all use all four strategies. And uh, so it's better best to think of them as uh, almost toolkits, if you like, rather than as different kinds of people. Anyway, so that's the passive person. And the goal of the passive person, really, the overarching principle is avoid conflict because you don't believe you can handle it. Then there's the aggressive strategy or the aggressive posture, if you like. And and this is where you have to get your own way. And the way to do it, according to this idea, is to control other people's behavior. So what you've got to do is establish control over them, possibly through intimidation or through sarcasm, manipulation in some way, uh, basically get them to do what you want. Um, so the agenda of that one is get your own way and establish control. Now, earlier I was mentioning three styles, passive, aggressive, and assertive, but you've mentioned four. What's the fourth? Uh, I'm going to go back to assertive in a moment. But the fourth is, is passive aggressive. Some people wonder, well, okay, how can you be both passive and aggressive at the same time? Well, the idea here is that you get your own way and maybe you inflict some damage but you do it with complete deniability. So you don't actually get a chance to be honest in the relationship. You're not being candid. You're uh, doing things in a slightly underhanded way. You might be going behind somebody's back. You might be backstabbing them. Um, You might be, for example, agreeing to do a job and then doing it so badly that you never, ever get asked again. That kind of thing. Whereas the assertive strategy is much more one where you're quite candid about what you want, quite candid about what you will do, what you won't do, but you're really not trying to control others. Uh, what you're doing is you're controlling yourself. Yeah, that's you have a great uh, sort of a, a liner description in, in the book somewhere, I think, where it, it basically sums up the assertive style is when you are both honest to your own wants and needs and respectful of those of other people. And I think that's, that's just a really great way of kind of summing it up. Um, now, but, but these other, these, these other styles, which I think is, is nice that you point out that it, it's not that their assertiveness is always, you know, that assertiveness is the good one and that the other three are the bad ones. It, it's that they, the other ones bec- easily become problematic sometimes. Um, but where, do, where does this come from? Like, are, are people born kind of passive or born kind of aggressive or does this develop over time? In in your experience, where do these styles or strategies and the overuse of them, where does that come from? Well, it's hard to know. Um, 
it may be that some people are uh, tuned a little higher than others and so more prone to uh, aggressiveness, other people being a little bit more naturally shy and retiring people. And so they're, mm, if they're going to overuse one of the styles, it's more likely to be the passive style. But more likely, it's a product of modeling and early experience uh, where people are learning certain ideas about the world. For example, if you're taught and learn through example that the only way anything gets done is by yelling and screaming and stamping your feet and um, being very aggressive with people, um, then that's kind of likely to be the, the, the strategy that you adopt. If, on the other hand, you're around people who are routinely uh, suppressing their own needs uh, in favor of others to an unrealistic extent uh, and behaving passively and never modeling um, appropriate conflict resolution, you might be more prone to use um, the passive style. Um, or indeed, maybe the progress or the passive aggressive style if um, you're getting uh, situations where people are uh, like if you try to get your own way, you're simply stamped on. So you have to get your own way in a sneaky uh, manner. So these might be ways that you use these different strategies. I think assertiveness is actually very difficult to learn and is almost never the automatic stance that people have. I think it's very much a set of, uh, of skills. We can easily fall into passivity, fall into aggression, fall into passive aggression. But assertiveness, I think you have to kind of learn um, either through experience or who knows, maybe through a book. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we're, I'm, I really want to dive into some of the specific kind of strategies and techniques that you talk about for learning this, this skill of assertiveness. But, but before we do, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the, the benefits, like what, what are kind of the practical benefits of learning to be more assertive? And, and maybe the way to start off that conversation is to say, how, how do people, how do people find your book or how do they find you? Or, cause in my experience, I'm a therapist and a lot of people come into therapy and they don't, they won't tell me, you know, I really need to learn to be more assertive, but it really comes out over the course of, of time. A, a lot of their issues, whether it's, you know, um, relationship conflict or, or anxiety, chronic anxiety or something like that, to some degree, a lot of it comes down to this, this major kind of weakness, which is they're not skilled in being assertive and they're overusing some of these, these other styles. Um, so, so in, in your experience, how do people come to realize that they need to be more assertive? How does that happen usually? Well, I think some people uh, become aware that, you know, relationships just aren't that much fun for them. Um, either they're maybe overusing the aggressive style and everybody is essentially clamoring for the exits. You know, they're, if they're an employer, they have huge turnover amongst their employees and people adopt pretty much an avoidance strategy and they're wanting to be more effective. Uh, if they're passive, they just feel run off their feet and uh, overwhelmed by their lives and really come to sort of dread being around other people. Uh, because they just think, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm just, I'm going to be loaded up with everything on the committee, uh, or wind up doing all these favors for everybody else who never, they never do any favors for me, uh, and so on. Uh, but often people become aware that it's a problem very indirectly um, by feeling burned out, 
uh, and they would initially think that burnout is the problem or indeed that stress is the problem or that depression is the problem. And it's only when they begin digging into that, thinking, okay, what's this about? Why am I so stressed? What are the issues going on in my life? That they begin to realize that this has something to do with their inability to set and maintain decent and kind interpersonal boundaries uh, uh, themselves. When this program started out, I was running a group therapy program for people who had been hospitalized and then discharged uh, with major depressive disorder. And they, they had an enormous readmission rate. And the idea of the program was to reduce that. Um, and so we ran people through this, this depression self-care program. But at the end of it, we realized, you know, a lot of these people, when we, we've just heard eight weeks of, of the kinds of issues in their lives, gosh, they really have many of them, not all, terrific difficulties setting in these interpersonal boundaries. And so let's have a group therapy program um, as well um, for specifically targeting assertiveness. And that's where this whole thing came out of. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's sometimes challenging. And sometimes it's only by going to therapy that you begin realizing oh, this is what's going on. And sometimes it takes the therapist to say, you know, it could be that you are not surrounded entirely by users, which might be the, the way that you've been referring to it uh, with me. Uh, it might be that you're allowing yourself to be used, and that's actually more the problem. So it, it, people come to it in a variety of different ways. That's so fascinating that you, you mentioned that it was kind of born out of a, um, working with people with major depression because I have found it just more and more helpful working with my clients who struggle with anxiety, which is which is my specialty. In fact, I it's rare I think that I that I get a client in now who who, who struggled with chronic anxiety who doesn't um, whether they understand it or not really need uh, some work on assertiveness and, and learning how to set those kind of healthy boundaries um, in their interpersonal relationships. So it's fascinating that it's, it, it almost feels like kind of a, a transdiagnostic skill that, that can help with almost, almost anything, any kind of emotional struggle. I, I agree with you. And it is transdiagnostic in that this isn't a, a strategy that's, you know, predominantly for people with panic disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder or depression or what have you. I think this is a broad life skill that could, people could really benefit from learning possibly in high school, something like that, and and then learning to apply in, in, in other settings. But also for people in clinical populations, um, it really applies in so many different areas. When we think about, um, you know, why is my client stressed out? We, we think of these things, well, we're encouraged to think of these things in terms of disorders. But actually, if you look at a person's life who's severely anxious or severely depressed, often the therapist winds up thinking, gosh, <laughs> no wonder they feel this way. Uh, their life actually is pretty anxiety-provoking or pretty depressogenic. Uh, no great surprise. I don't think there's much of a disorder in the emotion that they're feeling. Um, and, and, and why do people get in this situation? Because often they feel like their life is not their own. They're just being buffeted by circumstance and, and, and have no control over it. Assertiveness is really one of the primary ways that we achieve and, and exert control over our own lives. Um, and without it, 
mm, anxiety is kind of normal. Yeah, gosh, that that is just so true. I, I really resonate with that because so many of my clients come in and they I, it becomes pretty clear they they just have a really hard time saying no for one thing, saying no to things they don't want to do. This so they they take on everything, and I, I kind of say. I validate that and say, why would you not be stressed out if you, if you weren't turning anything down? Um, and at the same time, having a really hard time asking for the things they actually want, the things they really want and that are meaningful to them. Um, so we're going to get into to why, you know, kind of asking for what we want and saying no to things we don't want are, are an important part of assertiveness. But before we do, I, I just want to, I want to point out and get your thoughts on, on one thing, which is I, I really appreciate it in your book in particular, before you even get to any of the strategies about, you know, learning and implementing assertiveness, you have, you have three chapters that cover um, the biggest and most common obstacles to assertiveness. And I just think that's great that you sort of anticipate those obstacles ahead of time. And you, you call these the stress barrier, the social barrier, and the belief barrier. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about each of those and, and why it's important to anticipate those obstacles to assertiveness before we get into talking about how to be more assertive. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a cognitive behavior therapist predominantly, and inevitably that involves a little little bit of background in behaviorism. And a big part of behaviorism is this idea, really complex idea, that what you get rewarded for gets uh, more frequent, in effect, and a little bit more detailed than that. But nevertheless, if this stuff is so wonderful, if assertiveness is so great, it should be reinforcing. So why aren't we assertive all the time? I mean, why doesn't that just sort of automatically happen? And it just doesn't seem to for a lot of people. Well, I think there are some very clear reasons. And as you say, one of the answers, there's sort of three biggie, big categories, if you like. One of them is, is uh, the stress barrier. When you're in a stressful interpersonal encounter and your stress response is activated, another term that we use for that is the fight or flight response. It is a evolutionary response. It's designing us to uh, or promoting uh, the act of aggression in the case of the fight response or avoidance in the case of the flight response. So the more stressed out you are, the more it actually pulls you to one of these maladaptive strategies. And so uh, one of the central ideas of assertiveness is strike while the iron is cool, not while the iron is hot. What you want to do is relax yourself, breathe, and in many cases, you just need to get yourself out of that situation and take a walk around the block because it's only when you're calmer that you will be able to be more assertive. A lot of people think of assertiveness as being sort of the midway stop on the subway from passivity to aggression. And it's, you know, it's sort of like watered down aggression. In fact, it's not. It's a completely different thing. And it occupies the other pole of, uh, of the stress or relaxation response. Whereas both assertiveness, or I, sorry, both passivity and aggression occupy the stressed out uh, part. So stress are, pushes us away from assertiveness, for one thing. What about the social barrier? Well, basically, other people expect us uh, to be how we've been. And people like having control. You know, life is very difficult and we like having control. We seem to be kind of designed to seek it out. And if you've been giving control over your life to somebody else, 
they're kind of motivated to keep it. If you're becoming more assertive, uh, they're going to sort of push back a little bit. Also, if you've given in every day for years in this relationship and suddenly you begin changing, people are going to think, what's going on here? Does she hate me? Is, is the relationship over? Um, am I about to get dumped? You know, what, is, what does this mean? What's going to happen? And so on. That's very alarming for other people when we change all of a sudden. And so there's always this push to shift us back into the familiar pattern, even if it's not a great pattern for the relationship, a familiar pattern that we've been adopting all this time. So other people uh, are essentially the, the social, uh, social barrier, but often aggravated by our personal history with them. And then the third is this idea of the belief barrier. Um, the underlying ideas that we have about the world, about our place in it, about relationships, govern our behavior to a great extent. And this is where we go away from the behavioral side of CBT and into the cognitive side, which argues that a lot of our behavior is governed by our underlying beliefs. And so one of your beliefs might be, well, it's not nice to be assertive. So you want to be nice, so that would be a bad thing for you to be. Uh, another is you have to light a fire under people in order to get anything done. And that would promote uh, the aggressive um, stance. Um, and there's, you know, there's a huge variety of these different, different beliefs. Um, let's see if I can think of uh, another one. Uh, other people can't handle my assertiveness. You know, if I was to open my mouth and say, this is the kind of movie that I want to see, uh, they wouldn't be able to, to, to deal with it or they wouldn't be able to deal with what the thing, kinds of things that I want. Or maybe just my opinion doesn't matter. I'm, I'm kind of a low value person and other people are higher value than me. So my role in the world is, is servant. So these are three of the different areas of, uh, uh, of, of barriers. Obviously, there's more detail than that in the book, but that gives the rough idea. Yeah. And I, I just think it's so important to, to talk about those because it's, again, I think it's validating for people that, that being assertive is, it's a challenge, right? Especially if you've been, you've had a, kind of a long history and a, a lot of habit formation around not utilizing that strategy very well. There, there are some pretty major obstacles and it's not that, that you can't overcome them, but I think it is important to be prepared for, you're going to get some resistance and there's going to be some friction on a few different levels, your own body, other people, your own mind, all that kind of stuff. So I just really appreciate in the book that you, that you bring that up and, and make such a big point of that because I think it's, uh, it's hard enough to do this, but to get kind of ambushed by these big uh, pieces of resistance can make it all the harder. So I think that's great. Let's, uh, so I want to talk now about more specifically about why it's so hard to ask for what we want. And in my experience, this is one of those things that, that leads people into a bigger discussion of assertiveness, at least when they work with me in therapy is this is one of the, you can call it a symptom that they're reporting, right? Is that they, there's maybe a lot of resentment building up in their life or in relationships and that they, on some level, they, they want things to be different, but they just, they have a lot of resistance there. And, and it can show up in, in little things like asking for a different table at a restaurant, um, all the way up to, you know, bigger, more impactful things. Like there's a lot of dissatisfaction in, uh, you know, a couple's sex life. And one of the partners wants to bring this up, but feels, you know, a ton of resistance to being assertive about this. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about this, about, about, um, the relationship between assertiveness and just 
being willing to ask for what we really want. Like, why is this, why is this so hard for so many people? Yeah. Well, you often, you, you, you start out by t- pointing out that, uh, you know, this is often triggered by an awareness of a lot of resentment. And this is one of the signs that assertiveness is, uh, is a big issue for somebody. Often that resentment is, um, is a big part of the presentation. Um, because we do get resentful if our needs don't get met. Um, so why would it be so difficult to ask for something that we want and that we are frankly entitled to? Uh, well, one reason is sort of buried within that. And that is a lot of people just don't feel entitled to it. Other people are entitled to say what kind of restaurant they want to go to, what kind of movie they want to go to, uh, what kinds of things we do in bed, uh, or indeed what kind of table I might like at a restaurant that is actually serving me and I am their customer, but I'm not allowed to ask for what I want. Imagine going into a 7-Eleven and saying, well, I'll, I'll just take whatever whatever it is that you give me, um, even if it's something that I don't need. It, none of us would do that, right? You might go into a restaurant and that's exactly uh, uh, what people might might be willing to do. It's like, oh, okay, I, I, sure, I guess I'll sit over here by the bathroom or whatever. Um. So, yeah, so I'm not entitled to it. Um, And it's kind of asking to control somebody else's behavior, or at least it feels like this. Uh, It feels like I'm saying, here's what you have to do. And do I really have the right to impose that on another person? And in fact, for many people and in many situations, the answer might be, no, actually, I don't have the right to control another person, and therefore, it's inappropriate for me to ask for what I want or to demand what I want. And yet, what we're really doing when we're being assertive is informing people about what we want. They can do what they like. They can give us the better table. They can not give us the better table, whatever. But we at least are going to inform them what it is that we would like. Based on what they do, that may govern our behavior subsequently. The review that we give the restaurant, the willingness that we have to have sex, perhaps, um, whether we want to stay in this job or not. But the information giving is an important part of it, because if we don't do that, we're relying on the other person to be telepathic and to guess at what it is that we want and then do it for us um, when in reality, most people are pretty lousy telepaths. So really asking for what we want is more about giving information than it is about making demands typically. Yeah, that's. I think that's such an important distinction because I think a lot of the resistance to to just asking for what we want is that it feels like a demand to us. But but that clarifying that really you just you're providing information, um, I think, can really help a lot of people. So w- while we're on this topic, there's there's one other thing that, that I know this isn't your idea originally, but but you introduced me to it in the book, um, which is this this acronym called DESO D E S O. Which and Deso scripts, which are a way to for people who really have a hard time um, sort of asking for what they want. It, it's a way to kind of break it down and make it a little bit easier. Um, can you kind of talk through these four kind of ideas that are describe, express, specify, and outcome, and why that's important or, or helpful for asking for what we want? 
Sure, absolutely. When we when we're trying to come up with what it is that we want, or or at least express that to another person, sometimes it's hard to figure out. Okay, how do I word this in a way that might increase the other person's receptivity and possibly change the odds of it actually working? So a Deso script is kind of a way of um, it gives you a format to think about and hang your hat on it. And uh, the first step is describe. And what this is, is just a very short statement about what's going on. You're basically just orienting somebody to the problem. Like if you simply, um, in a stressed out way, tell somebody who pokes their head into the kitchen, can you make the gravy? Uh, they're like, what? Um, sorry, where is this coming from? And, and why do you want me to do it? And so on. So describe simply orients a person to the idea. Um, boy, uh, there's so much going on in the kitchen. I'm not sure I can get dinner done on time. Right? That's the statement. Um, I'm having a hard time making ends meet on this salary. That's the describe statement. Um, so that kind of that kind of idea, just sort of getting around to like what are, what generally is this conversation going to be about? I think we've all had the experience of somebody coming at us and asking, okay, "Do you have a car?" Uh, and uh, we don't really know what the what the circumstance is, right? We kind of want to fill it in. So this fills it in right off the bat. Express what's its impact on you. This situation. I'm feeling worried that uh, dinner's not going to be done till nine. That could be it, right? I'm concerned about this. What is the impact on you? Which is really not so much what is the situation, but what is the motive uh, for you making the request that you're about to make? Specify, uh, what do you want exactly? Many of us have been in a situation where we're offering all these justifications and saying, oh gosh, this is, you know, this is so difficult, this situation, and I've got so much work to do and so on. And then somebody says, listen, stop. What do you want? And then we're, we're like, uh, not really, uh, I hadn't really thought that far. <laughs> I didn't really have a plan in mind. Uh, if you don't know what you want, you're unlikely to get it. So don't just rely on a general long-winded description of the situation in order to have the other person come up magically with what you want when you haven't expressed it and may not know what it is. Specify what you want. I've got three projects here. I would like to have you tell me which of these is the most important. I will focus my efforts on that, right? What is it that you're looking for? And then outcome. Uh, what will happen then? Now, outcome almost invariably pulls for this idea of consequences. And if you don't, I'll quit this damn job, or I'll leave you, or something like that. Most often, it's what is the positive outcome that you're hoping for, very briefly, um, rather than the negative outcome you're afraid of. So then we can get everybody fed. Good enough. That is your outcome statement, right? Then I'll feel uh, so much better. That might be your outcome statement. Uh, then I can be sure to get this to you before end of work. That is your outcome statement. Very seldom is it a punishment that we've got in mind, although occasionally it is something like, you know, and if these remarks continue, I will be reporting them to HR, right? So every so often there's a negative, but not 
very often. So if you just think about those, you don't have to be rigid about them every time you're asking for the salt at dinner. But if you just think about them, it gives you a kind of format and it forces you really to to emphasize that third step, specify before you open your mouth, before you start making your request, before you ask for what you want, figure out what it is. Because sooner or later, somebody's going to say, what is it? And you have to be able to say, this is what I'd like. Yeah, it's so great. I think having these kind of practical frameworks like this really take something a little bit uh, conceptual, like it's hard to ask for what I want and, and give people much more kind of purchase for how to actually do this. So let's let's switch a little bit to talking about sort of the the other half of assertiveness, so to speak, which is instead of asking for what we want, a big part of assertiveness is also just being able to say no to the things we don't want. Um, and you, you have this, another really great line from from the workbook is, if you can't say no, you're not in charge of your own life. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. For example, what are you going to do uh, on the coming weekend? If you're not able to say no, then the answer is really clear. It's what anybody asks you to do. You know, if they say, oh, I want you to drive me to the airport, then I guess you're driving them to the airport. Uh, if uh, they want you to do these uh, 40 reports for work for, uh, for Monday morning, then guess that's what you're doing. You are really helpless. You are not the agent of your own life. Who is it that has the, the lever over your own life? It's basically everybody else. And it's only if you're able to say, you know, tell me what you would like, and then I will decide whether I'm able to give it that to you or willing to give that to you uh, and, and then act on that. It's only then that your life is in your own hands. Um, so you really have to be able to have that boundary. Doesn't mean that you're unkind. Doesn't mean that you're stingy. Doesn't mean that you're constantly saying no to everybody. It means that you will be generous to the degree that you have decided to be generous to, uh, if that sentence makes linguistic sense. Um, not just limitlessly um, uh, exhausting yourself, depleting yourself. Uh, until the point where you really have nothing left to give. One of the slogans that we use in this this idea is th that the cook needs to eat. You know, if you're going to do all this great stuff for everybody else and be so generous and and really help out, which is great, and that's what we want, it uh, you're going to have to be nourished. You're going to have to have some time to yourself. You're going to have to be able to take care of yourself, and you can only do that if you're able to set a boundary. Yeah, that's... That's so important. I, you know, I have to say here, kind of selfishly, assertiveness is becoming more and more one of my favorite things to work with people on, for the for the very reason that it it is so satisfying to see people the effect of people learning to become more assertive. Which is that it this word gets thrown around a lot, but I feel like in this case it really is true. It's so empowering that the confidence that comes when people learn that they can just ask for what they want and that they can just say no to the things that they don't want. It's, it's incredible. Like it's, it's just one of the most satisfying things that I ever do in my work as a therapist um, is getting to see people kind of stand up for themselves and kind of become more confident and, and assertive. And it's just a, it's really just a wonderful thing. I have to kind of gush here. Like your work has been so important to me and I know a lot of my clients Um and it's, it's just it's such a wonderful thing for people to be able to feel that empowered. So 
Uh, that's enough gushing for now. <laughs> for now. Uh, I, I, I want to move on to one of my favorite chapters in your, uh, in your workbook is called The Countdown to Confrontation, which I think is wonderfully dramatic. Um, <laughs> but what I really like about it is how just insanely practical some of your suggestions are for getting prepared for a big significant confrontation with someone. And I think this, you know, this is one of those things all of us can really relate to is we've got some, there's some big, there's a big meeting or there's a big discussion we have to have with someone. Um, and there's just so much anxiety even, and even dread that goes along with the buildup there. But this chapter is just loaded with um, some really helpful techniques. And some of them are really basic, um, but still crucial. Like, being thoughtful about the time and the place of the confrontation. You know, I think that's a pretty obvious one that actually a lot of us kind of miss. But there, there's one that is, I think, my favorite that really stands out to me, especially as a behavioral psychologist myself, which is describe the problem in behavioral terms. So if someone's got a big confrontation coming up, why is the, what is the step exactly and why is it so important? One of the things that people do when they're confronting somebody else, and and and, and this also plays out in um, asking for things, giving your opinion, giving feedback, and so on. What people often do is they'll say, say things like, "Well, I'd like you to be smarter about this," or "I want you to respect me." And um, people are really not very good at doing neurosurgery on themselves and giving themselves more neurons. Right, so you're asking for something that is not on the table. Right, people cannot actually be physically smarter. Just you know, in response to your request, sure, I'll up my IQ by ten points. Absolutely, I'll get right on that. Um, you know, it doesn't happen. Or asking uh, them to res- res- respect me uh, is frankly maybe outside their their realm of possibility, but also it's kind of vague. Because really what it's saying, I mean, there's so many layers of abstraction on that. It's saying that I have observed your behavior. I have interpreted your behavior as reflecting an invisible to me stance, which is that you do not respect me. Now, I've never observed that. I don't actually see that. Uh, All I see is your behavior, but I'm guessing that that's your attitude towards me. And what I want you to do is to change that invisible attitude that you're motivated to deny having in the first place, and that will find expression in your behavior, which is actually what the problem is originally, right? So instead of doing that, instead of asking people to change their character, I'd like you to be considerate, I'd like you to be respectful, I'd like you to do this, say what you actually want. One of the things that that um, pulls against that is that people are upset not by the individual's behavior, but by their interpretation. Oh, I think this means they don't love me, they don't respect me, they don't whatever. And so they see that as kind of the appropriate way to uh, to emphasize things. Um, and the other is that they're not really sure what gave them that impression in the first place. Like, what actually is it that makes makes me think that this person doesn't respect me. So there's a lot of preparation and really thinking, what gives me this impression that this person doesn't like me, doesn't respect me, is a lousy friend, whatever. Um, What is that behavior? Because what people can do is they can change their actions. They cannot change 
their psychology. One of the ways that I talk about that with clients, and I don't think it found, found its way into the book, is we have better control over our feet than we do over our head. In other words, we can change what we do. We can't very easily change how we feel. So ask for what you actually want. What is the behavior? And that's the critical thing, I think, in, in, in asking for change in, in somebody else because um, it's the only thing you're going to get. Yeah, I think I just I think that's great. Um, I think and actually I had a um, a, a this dovetails well with a, a reader question. Um, someone asked about I'm having a really hard time taking negative feedback from my spouse. I just instantly get defensive and I shut down. Um, so they were asking for kind of tips about that. And, and this strikes me as such a helpful thing in, in conflict with in our relationships with the spouse or what, whatever it is. You. you in a way, inadvertently, you make it really hard on someone else and you're likely to trigger some defensiveness if you ask for these these really kind of vague, big, sort of epic things, as opposed to asking for something very concrete and actionable, something they can actually do. It's a, it seems to me a great way to kind of soften people up and kind of get them on your uh, trajectory. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if you have thoughts about that, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, I can... I, I can uh... Uh, mention that when the book was originally coming up with, many of your uh, uh, listeners won't know this, but when a book uh, like this comes out, typically you, the author, you get to pick the title, but your publisher is the one who picks the subtitle. And the function of your subtitle is that it's what tells people like, okay, what's this darn book actually all about? Um and uh, the original suggested subtitle was how to get your own way in uh, work and in relationships, uh, something something to that effect. And I, I pointed out to them, I don't think you actually read the book, did you? Because really, when people are thinking about assertiveness, and if I was to ask people, why do you want to be assertive? Well, I want to be assertive uh, because I want to change other people. And when the book first came out, I'm sort of going off on a slight tangent here, but I will come back. Um, when the book first came out, I was doing all these radio interviews, which, you, you know, you're wedged in between the traffic and the weather. And people are after, like, don't tell me everything about your book. Just tell me the one point, the one point of your book. And I was thinking, oh, gosh, um, hmm, what is the one point of my book? I had no idea what the core point of my book is. And I now know what it is. And I don't think it's actually spelled out in the book what the whole point of the book is, which is a bit of a deficit, actually. Um, the biggest point about assertiveness, and if I had just one concept to get across to people, it's that assertiveness is not about learning to control other people. It's about controlling your own behavior instead. And, and so when we think about it, we think, yeah, but uh, my family members are being so obnoxious. Yes. But if you are trying to control them, all that's going to happen is all that defensiveness is going to come up. They're going to dig in their heels and they're not going to change. They may be even less likely to change than if you'd kept your mouth shut. So assertiveness is about changing your means of communication opening it up, letting people control their own lives. And often as a result of your action, they will change. So when you're getting negative feedback, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's tempting to get very defensive and, you know, 
partly because we're getting these vague ideas. You know, I want you to be a better husband uh, or a better wife. Uh, gosh, I have no idea what that means. Is that sort of a Margaret Atwood kind of wife? Is it, like, what are we talking <laughs> about here? Exactly. Uh, and, and, and so it naturally gets our defenses up. Where is if, if we're being very clear about what it is, it's much easier. How do we get that negative feedback? Well, one of the things that I really ask people to do is, is ask for clarity. Like what is the, as much as possible, the behavioral stuff? Like what is the actual stuff that's important to you that is telling you that I don't respect you or telling you that I don't like you or, or that I'm inconsiderate or whatever? Because my fantasy about what that means is likely not matching up with your fantasy about what that means. So really asking for clarity and trying to boil it down to stuff that you can actually do will get rid of some of your own defensiveness and often get rid of some of the other person's frustration and anger at the same time. So I don't know if that answers your, your question or point. No, that's great. That's, that's really wonderful. Um, yeah, it's funny how the, the main point didn't end up actually in the book. But, but I, you know, I, I think it's funny that you say that because I don't, if you had told me that, I would have assumed that that was in the book, which I think is a testament to the book because it, maybe if you didn't even say it explicitly, but all the ideas kind of circle around that core concept, I think. So I, I think it's someone who's paying attention. Um, I, th- I think it pretty easily gets inferred. So while, while we're on the topic of, of confrontation, there, there's, a, this, there's kind of two chapters in your book on confrontation. The second one, which is called constructive confrontation, is just really super practical. And, and you list a handful of strategies um, for having not so much, you know, a lot of confrontations end up being incredibly stressful and unproductive. Um, but if you want to have a, a difficult confrontation and you want it to be constructive, um, you've got all these great strategies. So I'm, I'm going to go down the list here and I'm, I'm not going to ask you to, <laughs> to give your thoughts on all of them, um, <laughs> which you'll be glad to hear. What I really, what I really want you to do actually is suppose one of the, our, our listeners is listening to all these strategies. Um, if they could only remember one of them, which one would it be? So I'm going to, I'm going to list these for you. And, and I want you to think about what's the one you hope people kind of take away. And, and they are, so th- again, th- these are strategies for having constructive confrontation with other people. Relax, watch your body language, maintain an even voice, start with bonding, use your Deso script, take responsibility, don't try to win, avoid old history, absolutely no absolutes, listen, find common ground, give point to the other side, keep your anger on a leash, wait out silences, and then after the confrontation, reward yourself and monitor results. (laughs) So that is a ton. And they're all like really helpful, I think. But if you had to just pick one, uh, if people only remembered one, what do you have a, you have a favorite in there or one you think would be most helpful? Well, it's a little bit of a difficult choice, but I would say that the most important one is probably find common ground. There's another principle that isn't spelled out in so many words, I think, um, in in the book, but it runs throughout that chapter, and I think in 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 other places as well. And that is that points of difference between you and someone else they're never resolved. You never get eliminate uh, differences or points of conflict by focusing exclusively on those differences or on those points of conflict. 
uh, where you get uh, agreement uh, and where a relationship begins working better is by focusing on what is working. So really emphasizing what, like, when I'm in a, in a conflict with you, let's say, what I'm really focused on and really aware of is that I think A and you think B and I think C and you think D and I want to do E and you want to do F. And we can argue about that till the cows come home. But if I focus on the fact that we are in agreement on G and H and I, we can somehow grow it from there. Focusing on where there isn't difference, where there isn't conflict uh, between the two of you is really helpful. And one way of doing that is sometimes to identify some area where the two of you are in what looks like fundamental disagreement, but they both, the, both of those positions have a common goal right? Maybe it's child raising, let's say, and we both want to uh, raise a responsible kid. But your idea is this parenting strategy, and my idea is that parenting strategy, and we're absolutely at loggerheads with each other. If we emphasize, like, let's imagine that whatever technique we use, it all works. What kind of kid are we looking for here? And really, Finding the areas where you agree and then growing out from there, you're much more likely to um, come up with predominant agreement than you are if you focus on the areas of difference. Long answer, but uh, uh, that's it. Uh, there, there are other strategies as well that I also see as important, but uh, I think that's probably the key one is, is grow agreement out. Don't shrink a disagreement down. So let's. I want, we've got a few minutes left here, but I want to shift into a slightly more uh, philosophical kind of segment of the uh, of the conversation because I've had these these two questions just really kind of burning in my mind ever since I got your book and started working with it and using it to um, work with my clients, which has been a few years now. And, and these questions have been kind of I've been sort of formulating them and, and you know bouncing them off other people, and so I'm, I'm just really excited to get your your take on these, but. And they both have to do with assertiveness. But the first one is, to what extent are we responsible for other people's feelings? Now, and I, I want to frame this up a little bit. Um, so on the one hand, it, it's pretty intuitive, I think, for most of us, that if I say something mean to someone, you know, I'm in a disagreement with my spouse and I, I say something kind of sarcastic and biting, they're going to feel bad. They're going to feel upset. And I'm going to feel, I, I think, kind of guilty or responsible after the fact anyway. Um, and then I'm probably going to feel the urge to apologize or something like that. And then, but on the other hand, there's this long sort of philosophical tradition dating probably all the way back to the, the Stoics, right? And, and running all the way up through modern cognitive behavioral therapy that makes this really key distinction that is, it's not things themselves in the world, whether it's, you know, a thunderstorm or someone else's words that cause emotion. It's our interpretation of what happens. It's how we think about what happens that leads to how we feel, which ultimately seems to suggest that we are the only ones who are responsible for how we feel. So, so given those two kind of polarities, how do you think about this question of the extent to which we do or don't have responsibility for other people's emotions? Does that make sense? It, it it does actually. It makes makes perfect sense. And I I guess I think about it 
in the way that I wind up thinking about almost all polarities, and that is that the, the neither of the poles is very satisfying. Um, in that we, you know, as you say, if I am yelling and screaming in the office or indeed at home and other people are stressed out, why are they stressed out? Well, yeah, the fact that I'm yelling and screaming or you know, behaving obnoxiously probably has something to do with it. And maybe I should take some responsibility for that. But is it my responsibility to guard people from, in effect, the nature of reality, uh, the reality being that I'm not willing to be in a relationship possibly uh, where you're sleeping around on me all the time? You know, uh, do I... Uh, need to protect my kids from the fact that, yeah, if you leave your bicycle at school, then you won't be able to get to soccer practice and um, and I'm not driving you. Uh, that kind of thing. So to what extent um, are we responsible for each other's feelings? Well, I think, I think we are too, our, our responsibility lies with our own behavior to behave respectfully towards other people. Um, but not to protect other people's uh, uh, emotions from, from, I suppose, distress um, by denying reality or pulling them, pulling away from uh, the reality that I'm taking far too much responsibility in this relationship, or uh, the reality that I'm miserable, or feeling run off my feet and or feeling that something in this relationship is unjust. I'm doing everything and you're doing nothing, that kind of thing. I, I suppose the, the problem with more of a continuum model is that it's always a bit of a mushy middle thing. So it's not very satisfying. It'd be so much easier if we were to say, ah, B, B is the correct position. <laughs> but I, I suspect it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I, I don't know where I heard this, but I, some kind of book on parenting or something, I, I think I, I heard this idea that we are responsible to other people, but not for them, um, which I think is an interesting way of getting at that idea of we are responsible for our actions, things we can actually control, but we it's, it's dangerous to assume that we um, are responsible for the outcome because that, that sort of implies a level of control that that probably isn't accurate doesn't really line up with the nature of reality as you put it <laughs> a level of reality or a level, level of control that we don't actually have to some extent we're we're deluding ourselves i suppose um by you know trying to manipulate other people's emotions to that extent and often i think when we are trying to do that we're trying to make another person feel this um really we're not Really, we're not. We're, we're kidding ourselves. What we're really trying to manipulate is our own emotions. I'm managing my own anxiety by not being assertive, for example. And that's really what this is all about. It's not really about protecting the other person's feelings. It's about indulging my fear of conflict, possibly. Um, so the aim is often not what we think of, at least not at the front of our mind sometimes. Right. Okay, so my final question for you here, um, and it's it's kind of a big picture question, but most of your book and your workbook is dedicated to 
what I would call assertive communication. You know, it's very much about um, communication, especially in interpersonal interactions, um, asking for what you want, saying no to what you don't want, taking feedback well, doing confrontation constructively, all those sorts of things that we've been talking about. But the more I've learned about assertiveness, especially from you and your book, um, the more I've worked on it myself and, and the more I've worked on it with my clients, the more it seems to me like there's maybe kind of a broader definition of assertiveness that goes beyond just communication into how we live our lives generally, which is that I almost think of to live assertively means to go after what's important to us, our, our values, and not be overly swayed by how we happen to be feeling in a given moment. And I, I feel like you kind of hinted this idea a little bit um, in, in the beginning, in the introduction of the book, when you talk about, you talk about assertiveness as being there, right? That it, so yeah. what, do you, what do you think about this idea of, of assertiveness as, maybe also as a kind of a broader concept? Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I, I gave the example of how, um, you know, I, I kind of missed out on the core principle of my own, my own darn book, um, which is that it's about controlling yourself, not controlling other people. But I think years after uh, the publication of the book, I suddenly realized what I'd written. It's, it's, it's actually a text of existential um, therapy or, or existential psychology. Um, and and that, that phrase had never really occurred to me as I was doing the writing. But it's very much about taking charge of your own life and taking responsibility for your own life and allowing the consequences of your own actions to play out. You know, so somebody, you, you know, you might say what you want and it's possible somebody won't like it. And you, in effect, allow for that possibility. But what this, I think, can do is free you up to the point where you can say, well, what is important to me? Uh, what are my values? What is the contribution that I want to make to the world? Um, we have all in uh, Western societies, I think, been beneficiaries of so much. What is it that we want to give back? What are our key principles? And uh, if we're not spending all of our energy trying to, in effect, manipulate how everybody feels about us all the time, then it frees us up to, to live out our values and take responsibility for that and take responsibility for our own actions. Well, Randy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This, is, this has been really um, enjoyable, but also obviously really instructive. Um, are there some good places for people to go to learn more um, about you and, their work, and your work? If they, if they like what they've heard, uh, where, where do people go? Absolutely. Well, one place to go, of course, is to your local bookstore or, or online bookseller, uh, which actually has, has this book uh, and my other books, um, How to Be Miserable and How to Be Miserable in Your Twenties, uh, for sale. So that's, that's one place. Uh, but a second is my uh, YouTube channel, which is um, How to Be Miserable. And of course, YouTube channels always have that like really complicated <laughs> URL. Uh, so rather than recite that, I would just say, go to YouTube, type in how to be miserable and look for a channel by that name. You'll find it. And that's, um, I put up a, a new video most weeks, um, on a variety of topics, including very often, uh, assertiveness. I also have my own website, randypatterson.com, uh, that relates to books and appearances and things like that. 
Okay, wait. You can't throw out the uh, this title, "How to Be Miserable," without giving us the what's the thirty second elevator uh, pitch or, or explanation of what this is about. <laughs> Gosh, thirty seconds. What can I do in thirty seconds? Um, essentially, okay, you can have ninety this, seconds. <laughs> yeah, this this is based on on uh, something from that group program that I talked about earlier. That depression group program, rather than. Uh, a focus on what can you do to make your life better. That's really a question you've been asking yourself almost every moment of every day since you were born. And many of us are a little bit unsatisfied about it. It's a kind of mental exercise to ask, what if it was my mission to feel worse rather than better? And Interestingly, that's something I've maybe never even thought of before, but what if for some bizarre reason, maybe I win a million dollars or something, I, I, could, I wanted to feel worse, how would I do it? And the interesting thing is by looking at that, what we often realize is that we're already living our life as though that was the mission. And in fact, improving our lives may not involve doing anything new. It may just involve not doing some of what we're already doing that's actually impairing our life. That's, that's it in a nutshell. That was very concise. I love it. <laughs> and uh, for those of you guys listening, um, both of the books are, are really great. And I haven't read your new one yet, but it is it, the new one, right, is How to Be Miserable in Your 20s. Is that, is that correct? That's right. And it's it's focused on the challenges of young adulthood and managing that bridge between sort of independent adolescence and full-on adulthood, and, and based in large part on the idea that um, because of child raising, many of us are raised to be children, not surprisingly, and, 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 and told a bunch of nonsense about what it is to be an adult. Like, you have to know your passion in order to have any direction whatsoever, which is nonsense, or you have to be completely confident, or you need to do all this work on your self-esteem, or all these different ideas that actually may be more slowing us down than speeding us up. So it reviews a lot. Of gotcha. That. Well, Randy, thank you again for coming on, and um, we'll have to get you back on the podcast at some point and maybe talk about those other books. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.